From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, November 12th. You're listening to the Macrocast. I'm Tony Fratto. Uh, we've got Brendan Walsh and John Fagan with Markets Policy Partners uh, with us, as always. Um, guys, you know, like when we were uh, so, you know, prepping for the show and thinking about putting it together the agenda, it was like, Hard to not to say that inflation was going to be the top issue. It is, uh, you know, it's, it's having its moment, isn't it? Uh, after uh, after yesterday's was it yesterday's print or, or the day Wednesday's print, right? Yeah, they they pushed it up to Wednesday because of uh, Veterans Day. So, um, you know, so a hot reading. Um, you know, I tried to. I, I made a comment on on uh, uh, on Twitter uh, about you know like you know, because there was this burst of uh, reflections on. 70s style inflation and while we're having a bout of inflation it's not 70s style inflation um i think you know there are a lot of people saying things that they weren't old enough to experience at the time which <laughs> i regret regretfully am uh old enough to uh, to remember pretty well but you had you know you oh, had, no it's good you're still alive <laughs> i'm still alive i'm still not yeah i just love memories of the uh of the fond memories of the 70s despite the uh insanely high inflation that we had. And if you think back on that time, I, yeah, for the seven, 1973 to 78 period, uh, inflation averaged over 7%. Now. Yeah. No, I remember one of my friends, her father bought 30 year treasuries that were yielding like 15%. And it, it was, right, the, the, it was like five years ago that the, the final one. Oh, the coupon. Ran yeah. Off. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So by the and then by the late 80, uh, 70s, you know, from the, the, the 78 to 81 period, it's a, a three year period where uh, or a 79 to 81 period where uh, inflation averaged over 12 yep. percent for that period. This is like right. So twice as high as uh, this this week's reading. And uh, and, you know, we could we could have lots of discussions as to whether the you know the rates are comparable given the you know the composition of the household basket and all kinds of other reasons but suffice to say this is inflation it's it is impacting uh, a lot of things and a lot of households and it's like it's real um but we have to stop comparing it to the 70s it was it's not the, the 70s were in a different uh we're in a different stratosphere we hope we don't get, get there but it's having a, uh, you know, it's having an economic, uh, uh, there's a, there is an economic impact. And, uh, but I would say what, the, what, what we saw this week is less about the economics, although they're real and we should get into them, but the politics of them are just really horrible for, uh, uh, for, uh, for Democrats and the Biden administration in particular. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I agree on that front that I, I kind of, the, the inflation numbers have much more to do with supply constraints, which is a, a federal government failure, that, in my opinion, than it, it more has to, than it has to do with the, the Fed, you know, keeping rates low. I think the Fed has played somewhat of a role in it. But when you when you look at a lot of these these numbers that are going up a lot, a lot of it has to do with supply constraints. And and we just haven't done a very good job, um, you know, fixing these su- supply constraints. Well, and some of it is just, uh, I mean, these are, would, would we, but for COVID, would we be having any of these issues? No way. No, no not so, at all. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so basically, you know, the inflation lasted longer than anybody expected. 
You know what else lasted longer than anybody expected? COVID. 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 <laughs> the Delta wave hit us just, just at the wrong time. Just when things, everybody we was had, optimistic. Yeah. And, and it was, it was as bad as it, honestly, the timing was, was terrible in terms of the psychological impact. Uh, but, you know, we've seen a, the, when you sit down and unpack the arguments and say, you know, there is clearly a public health issue here. The, you know, coming out of COVID, we're always going to have distortions. The, the point that we've made uh, on the, on the macrocast before, and John Dick has made this point, the reallocation of household purchasing away from services and toward goods, mm-hmm. that has been a, a market dynamic here. Yeah. And so there are all these, there are all these intellectual ways that you can, you know, unpack and explain and that sort of thing. The counter argument is, but look at milk prices. Look, yeah, yeah. look at milk prices. No, right? but, but also going back to it, the, the, the way that the Fed solves inflation is to raise rates. Raising rates now might exacerbate the issue and it, it could it, it could drive prices up higher because then the companies that are trying to hire people and, and expand their, their capacity have higher uh, uh, borrowing uh, costs. It is tricky. I mean, look. I mean, we, we, we should, let, let's talk about the economics of it, but um, uh, and, but just make let's put a pin in this point, which is that there's lots of explanations. There's lots of we can still talk about. You know, there's still base effect things to talk about. There are supply and demand and transformation of the economy uh, issues. There is the uh, the spending burst that came uh, in the uh, uh, late winter and early spring. Uh, the you know, fiscal spending, uh, the, you know, giving b- money to people um, uh, that already had uh, many of whom already had fairly healthy balance sheets, um, and uh, so there's like a, there was a lot going on there, lots of ex- explaining. And to your point, John, like if you're explaining, you're probably losing, you know, from a political yeah. perspective, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, because like, yes. like you're telling all these reasons, talking through, and the others, you know, your critics get to say inflation spending and if that's not enough they're going to raise your taxes too you know and it is a uh, so politically just like put just set this there right politically it's really really tough uh for them even infecting their decision on uh you know on uh, uh on you know what to do about with powell you know talk about a no-win situation right um right because if you make a change um and inflation stays uh you know elevated uh then you get you then you're gonna get blamed for it because you're you have your hands on it if you don't make a change and inflation stays elevated (laughs) then uh right then um uh you know then you know you could have done something about it and you didn't so you know so the president's gonna have to he's gonna end up owning the inflation story, no matter what, you know, whether it's, uh, um, uh, you know, if it's, if it stays elevated, if it comes down, then everyone's, you know, stories sort of lock into, uh, lock into place, you know, then uh, you could say it's transitory. Some of it's not transitory though, right? I mean, like we know, we do know that the, the wage pressures are probably, you know, wage pressures are going up, wages aren't going to come down. Right. And, and the, the housing component, uh, really has nothing to do with supply constraints. That's uh, that's going to be sticky. So Brendan and I, our, our long, long-standing, this was something we formulated last year. Our long-standing view of the inflation dynamics around COVID would be that you would get obviously a lot of noise and distortion. You'd have a high inflationary 
period during the you know during the the longer tail of covid but that it would be transitory as you put supply chains and so forth back together but on the other side of that would be a higher inflation plane because of the dynamics that in some ways were accelerated by covid but in other ways were already in train one key one being the rollback of globalization which was highly disinflationary china entering the wto was one of the you know over over a period of time one of the most deflationary forces that we've seen disinflationary forces yeah. that we've seen uh, in in global macro spheres and this is incrementally being rolled back there is a national security uh, imperative of reshoring a, a variety of different supply lines and manufacturing chains which are going to be higher cost here at home and uh, there's also the worker you know, the labor movement, however you feel about them, were pretty disempowered for a pretty long period of time. And you can certainly see the pendulum swinging back uh, post-COVID in, in that direction with a little bit more bargaining power at the table for, for labor. You also have the fact that, you know, there's clearly like the technological gains that we're going to be experiencing over time are disinflationary, but a lot of them aren't there yet. Like the, you know, the idea of sort of truck drivers being replaced by machines, that is a thesis that is coming at some point probably, but yeah. isn't ready for prime time right now. And, uh, and so in this kind of temporal period, uh, you know, workers are going to be asking for larger, you know, uh, larger pay packages, better safety and all that stuff. And so we think that there are some meaningful forces that would put inflation on in a higher plane. For the Fed, that's a feature, not a bug. Like they've said, it's been hard to message this now with this with the spike of inflation. But in the in the pre, you know, in the dark days of deflationary COVID, the Fed said, look, this is an opportunity for us to vault to a higher inflation level. Missing the 2% inflation target on the downside consistently for over a decade is not policy success. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's, I think that is uh, that's that's really important. The, the aim is not to get back to sub two percent uh, inflation growth. The uh, the aim is uh, likely to settle you know above two percent uh, for s- some period of time and maybe uh, as a as a perpetual objective. The you're right. Uh, look, I mean, the, the, uh, on um, you know. Um, I don't know that we understand. I don't know that we understand because we haven't seen it empirically well enough. Just how much um, wages do or do not feed into inflation? Um, you know how much of that is is passed on in inflation. Um, but you know, but if we are tolerating uh, elevated inflation, um, it does make the challenge of real wage gains much harder. Um, right. I mean, so, and I think Jason Furman had, uh, something out, re- you know, recently showing that, you know, r- real wages today are, uh, you know, 0.6% below what they were in 2019. Um, and, uh, so, you know, if people aren't happy about their, you know, the economy right now, I mean, that's a decent reason, right? Is that the, the, the you know, even with, with, with all of the money and whatever, uh, you know, bidding for wages that's going on, uh, it hasn't, it's not sufficient yet that they feel richer today than they did before. And, uh, and, you know, so that's, 
you know, that leads to um, you know, different economic outcomes for them, or di- I'm sorry, different economic decisions for them. A disinflationary dynamic is the one that we've been used to for the last, you know, for the last 10 years. And it's actually, you know, there are some things you can say about it. Japan is, uh, has been in very low inflation for a very long time. It's seen as an economic malaise. It's seen as something that's very bad. Obviously, the Bank of Japan has been trying to do this vault higher to a higher inflation plane. At the same time, it's a nation of pensioners. <laughs> the demographics are, uh, are so old in Japan that living for fixed income and, uh, and retirees who are living off savings, disinflation's awesome. <laughs> and disinflation has also given the Fed the leeway to be able to do, you know, massive rate cuts kind of whenever they want it. Yeah. And we're in a situation where the Fed uh, was pirouetting, you know, pivoted very swiftly away from their rate hike cycle in 2019 to essentially offset more or less the threat of a U.S. China, the risks around a U.S. China trade war. And they could do that, even though growth was strong, we were going into, they were, you know, just hiking steadily just a few months before. The reason they could do that is because inflation was so low and so tame, you can pull a QE, you know, lever without any sort of concerns on that front. If you're in that sort of disinflationary, it bought a lot of room on the fiscal side too, because low interest rates, it's not, you know, it's not the debt, it's the debt services, the argument that we've heard from Secretary Yellen. And that works if you're in a disinflationary kind of low, uh, low interest rate environment. So it, it, it may not be, you know, there may be a careful what you wish for kind of element about getting back to reasonable or, you know, what had previously been considered like healthy and reasonable levels. Yeah. Okay, I want to ask you guys something, because like, here's something like, you know, when you, uh, we just went through some, a bunch of earnings and um, are, there, are there more earnings next week that we have, or are we, we're getting towards There the still is run, some, right? but the, basically the big guys, the big guys, the big guys. finished this week. Yeah. Well, well, next week is the retailer. So we've got US oh, that's right. sale. And then we've got the gauntlet. The last ones that kind of t- the caboose of earnings season tends to be like the Walmart Lowe's. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and that's Costco. coming next week. Yeah. So that'll be right. interesting along with retail sales. That's what I re- Those are the ones that I really, really want to see. Right. Because they are on the very front edge of not just, uh, you know, of consumers, but also, you know, especially in the case of Walmart, uh, Target, you know, on marginal consumers also. Um I don't know. It's like dollar. I like, I'd even like to see like what's dollar store and dollar general uh, those guys doing also. And the reason I asked that is that like what we've seen so far from, um, from, you know, big companies that have um, that have reported is, you know, they're reporting like very little resistance to pricing, you know, like they have, imp- they have, they've been able to raise prices and they've seen, you know, no pushback, uh, and in fact, what, and some of them have reported that uh, buyers have come to them offering to pay more to get things quicker, you know, which is right. I mean, it's like backwards, but they're saying, hey, we'll pay you more if you can, uh, you know, if you can promise that you'll give it to us and get it to us faster. So they're not, there's, no, there's very little pricing resistance. Um, we are seeing, you know, on the, on the wage front and labor front, we're seeing like, you know, uh, you know, what they call striketober and uh you know a lot of a uh, lot of uh job actions going on out there john deere uh is facing a strike that i don't know who may, may end up being a prolonged um a prolonged strike um 
And uh, and we just said that you know we expect the you know the, so that we know the Fed's going to take the uh, the foot off of uh, uh, its accommodative stance, and prices are increasing, wages are increasing, um, and uh, and yet people are saying they see no let up in demand, right? And we know like you know the, the fiscal the you know the big fiscal response that might have been ex- expected, right? Like we know what's already been out there has kind of run out. Uh, balance sheets still healthy, but have been working down off their peaks. Why is no one saying, "Look, demand's actually going to come off"? You know, like why isn't why is no one predicting demand? Because what they're saying is like we see demand as far as the eye can see, and I say I don't get this. Prices are rising. The you know the cost of producing things is rising. Uh, easy money is coming off and fiscal support is coming off. And yet people are saying none of these things are going to have an impact on demand. Demand is going to say just as strong as, as ever. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and everyone's investing in output right now, which then tells me, you know, like, I don't know, we see a glut of stuff at some point, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. Like for semiconductors, uh, you know, semi, semi, semiconductor chips, you know, everyone's piling into semiconductor chips and, you know, two years from now, 2023, you'll be getting semiconductor chips in your happy meals. You know, they'll just be like, <laughs> handing them out, you know? Uh, yeah. You know, you know there, there was, there was a period and it was kind of October as we saw the, the headlines about supply chain and and all that really coming back in a in a major way there was a sense of of stagflationary risk and uh there was a little bit of market volatility around that and i think uh and i just to your point tony i think it was honestly like earnings season that really changed that we were going into corporate reporting the analysts were kind of bracing for uh, management to say you know this is really causing us a product called playing havoc with our profitability it's paying, you know, our, our customers are, are taking beating on the back of this. And you saw some isolated cases of that, but that's exactly how the market kind of treated it, isolated cases. And for the most part, it was, you know, a story about management adapting and uh, finding ways to preserve profitability, to hold their margins up, uh, to use, you know, the, the, the strong demand, which they continued to say looks, continues to look strong. And uh, it really was, that was that was kind of a moment where you know the the stagflationary story stalled out a little bit, and now it seems like this the idea that well, yes, demand is going to stay strong, and that's actually feeding into the inflation story. And so, because of this, you know, continually strong demand, the you know basically there's it's easy to mischaracterize the multi-trillion dollar uh, infrastructure bill as stimulus is not stimulus; it's investment. Um, and it's over a long period of time. But, you know, that story gets lost in the headlines easily. It gets lost in the political noise. And so I think right now there's, a, you know, we've seen we've seen the, the markets responding to, you know, recalibrating um, toward not stagflation, but, you know, a, a higher inflationary, uh, a higher inflationary plane and maybe the Fed having to jump out with with rate hikes. And so you see the treasury yield curve, which is growth sensitive, and the longer term kind of growth mm-hmm. outlook, you see that flattening out a lot. And it's because the expectation will be, you know, the the Fed is going to be dragged into, you know, faster rate hikes earlier. And then that's going to make the longer term growth picture at less rosy. 
Um, well, well I guess, I mean, John, you, you brought up a good point on the infrastructure, but I, I go going back to the, the, the more partisan reconciliation bill, uh, Tony, do you think that these higher inflation prints kind of make it more difficult to, uh, no question. For this thing to be passed? Yeah. Yeah. No, no question. No question at all. I mean, again, especially for like the one, the, like the one guy who you would ask that question to, like, you know, you don't have to wait for, you know, you don't he have already to wait told for, you. Yeah, that's right. He tweets it out, you know, <laughs> like it was his very first, you know, tweet as soon as the numbers came out that, uh, you know, this inflation tax on Americans um, uh, from all of this. And he puts the, you know, puts the blame on all of this spending, uh, you know, spending trillions of dollars that's um, um, creating this tax on, on Americans. And um, ironically, uh, and, and so that's going to, you know, limit the uh, the the size of uh, of that bill. And I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't insist on his 1.5 trillion, as opposed to, you know, people were hoping like, yeah, he says 1.5, but we think we can yeah, get him yeah, yeah. to 1.8 or 2 trillion. I think I think people should ratchet that dial that back a little bit to probably 1.5 uh, trillion or or below at this point. And um, and also, ironically, like you know, Joe Manchin's tweet. Is that's the Republicans' midterm campaign message? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's like no, that's it, it in a tweet, yeah. right? That's what they're going to be out saying. They're, you know, they're going to say, uh, "Look at all of this spending." Um, you know, your real wages are down because inflation is up, uh, and um, and and instead of uh, helping you, the next thing that they want to do is raise your taxes. You know, they want more spending and they want to raise your taxes on top of the inflation tax that you're paying. Yeah. No, it's kind of ironic because, I mean, Democrats are criticizing Democrats for not actually spending anything. And so they lose on both sides of this argument. Exactly. They actually yeah. didn't spend anything, but they're being blamed for having higher inflation for spending a bunch of stuff. Politics is tough, man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but Tony, just to circle back on the legislative stuff, you, you, uh, you, made, the right call. you made the right call. And Thank you. We're, we're with you on the infrastructure, on the bipartisan infrastructure bill happening that week. That was a good. That was a good call. You know, we uh, we, we needed Matt McDonald on this credit. week. For, yeah, just for just to like to eat crow on that one. But uh, but what about the what about what's your call now on Build Back Better? Uh, as it, as I, it, I do think that a bill does eventually get done in in December, um, and it's going to have debt ceiling in it. And uh, it'll be, and it will, you know, it'll be under, it'll be uh, reconciliation. That ceiling will be in it, and it'll be. My guess is it's going to be closer, like I said, to to one point five trillion, and not the two trillion that other uh, people were talking about. Uh, hey, let's come back. I, w- I would love to. I want to come back uh, after the break, and um, and and let's do a little segment talking about uh, global risks. There are a few of them out there, and um, and we should we should take a look at them. Uh, you're listening to the Macrocast. Every two weeks, HPS measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations for the economy. The Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index, powered by HPS, accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us through HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com. All right, back on the macrocast. Um, guys, um, you know, it's something we've been you know, talking about we want to do is just, you know, really make sure we're taking a look at what are these, uh, what are the, the, you know, the sort of big global risks out there that that we should be paying attention to. Um, 
one thing we got a little bit new, you know, a little bit of news on uh, over the last day or so with the, with um, President Biden, President Xi uh, are going to be talking in a a virtual summit, uh, which is interesting. But you know, I, I'm always going to put the U.S. China relationship at or near uh, the very top of my uh, you know on my global risk outlook of something to always keep a you know, keep an eye on. Um, I think it's the most important economic relationship in the world and it will be for the next 50 years um you know for a long time we're going to be uh, uh it's going to be very important how these countries deal with each other and understand each other and if they fail to understand each other um you know real disruptions and with the place where i think that's most likely to play out is taiwan um there's been a lot of saber rattling over taiwan uh over the past week um with uh, you know a, a congressional delegation <laughs> that went, uh, the Chinese claimed it was a sneaky trip to uh, uh, to Taiwan because they didn't announce it publicly and uh, took on bridge and uh, did you know did a couple flyovers and some ships into the South China and the, the Taiwan Straits and so uh, you know if Taiwan if if there's a breakdown in Taiwan if um, uh, if if Taiwan if China takes um, uh, you know, a- action to take full control uh, of Taiwan, uh, you know, by force. That is one of those super disruptive events, you know, that will not go quietly. It will have very big economic uh, impacts, both, you know, back- macro impacts, impacts for many, many foreign firms operating in uh, in China. Uh, we, you know, we saw a little, you know, sort of a micro event with the, uh, disruption with the NBA a few years ago. Um, it would look that, you know, that dis- it would make that dispute look like a, um, you know, tea party. So, um, you know, Taiwan would be a very big deal. And that's at the top of my list for, for global risks that I keep an eye on. Yeah. From the market's perspective, we've just seen over the past decade or more, we've seen geostrategic, geostrategic risks, the sort of ballistics risks, really downplayed in financial markets and the way that they are the, the kind of ripples that they would send. So just for instance, when, when Brendan and I were at the hedge fund back in the early two thousands, uh, I, I covered Asia when North Korea would shoot off a rocket, the Korean one, the South Korean one would fall and we would buy it <laughs> because we were <laughs> betting against world war three. That yeah. was the bet, you know, and uh, you could pick up just a little bit of extra juice on the back of that. And, uh, and then everybody sort of got the joke. Right. And every, and nowadays when there's, you know, news from North Korea, you don't see a flicker in the South Korean one. And, uh, and so when you looked at some of the other major geostrategic events and geo and global security events over the past few years, there are only a few that really stand out as moving the needle um, more than just r- very focused regionally. One being, you know, obviously the uh, the Iranian attack on uh, on Aramco, uh, Aramco infrastructure, where basically like half of Saudi's oil capacity was taken out in one fell swoop. A very repeatable, uh, depending, you know, based on what we've heard, very repeatable kind of drone attack, and uh, and oil prices shot up, but. Not that, not that much, honestly. Like, I think it went from like you know seventy to seventy nine in Brent, yeah. It wasn't, was like, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And there were some real. Normally, concerns. it would have gone to one fifty. It would have doubled. Yeah. It. Yeah. 
And when uh, President Trump had the head of the Quds Force, the Iranian, uh, the the basically the uh, the Iranian commander taken out at the beginning of, I think it was the beginning of 2019, there was a lot of consternation about that and about that starting a shooting war that caused volatility across global financial markets. But it's, you know, when you look at the, you look at the Taiwan dollar, you look at mm-hmm. the Taiwanese uh, stock exchange. These are not evidencing really anything. And you look out in the region, there's not really anything you can see that that looks like. Now, there's a lot of stability sort of baked into the Taiwan dollar. It's a very managed kind of currency. And the Taiwan Stock Exchange isn't particularly volatile. It's got a lot of domestic participation. So there's a lot of kind of ballast in the hold in, uh, in Taiwanese financial markets. But it's really hard to see market participants betting on a worst case scenario around that right now, but it's really hard to price it in. Like, what are the, what are the chances of like 1%, like the super low probability, but incredibly high impact events are, are impossible to really account for in so many ways in your portfolio. Yeah. That's the story with all tail risks, right? I mean, um, you know, I mean, you could try to, you could try to hedge, you know, in certain, uh, uh, in certain sectors, you can, you can, you know, you can try to hedge, but, you know, I mean, buying, you know, buying insurance is always expensive, right? Until an event happens, you know, um, yeah. right? So, um, so, yeah, so it's really, really, you know, those tail risks are really hard to price. They seem, they seem expensive most of the time. Um, and uh, in a way, she'd rather just put that cash in your pocket and um, know that the sun is still going to come out tomorrow. But there, like, but there are, there, there aren't. Uh, but, but I, th- I do think you're right. I mean, there is a uh, the, the the sort of sense of um, what contagion looks like, even if certain events were to exist, has greatly diminished. Also, you know, so you know, I remember um, you know dealing my early days at the Treasury Department in the early 2000s, dealing with uh, you know this is on, this is after the 90s, right? With uh, we had like lots of there was a lot contagion was on everyone's lips, right? There was. You know, from Asian financial crisis and uh, even even starting earlier in the decade with the tequila crisis and, uh, you know, sort of the emerging market disruptions that could have an impact in um, in global markets uh, and cause, you know, more uh, uh, knock on effects in other in other countries. That was a very strongly held belief. It was something we were dealing with with Brazil, Argentina, Turkey. Uh, in the early 2000s. And, um, and I think, you know, uh, in, in a lot of ways, in the way that, uh, you know, I think if you multiply, um, you know, John and Brendan by a million traders out there who all kind of saw the same thing that, yeah, and like something like just because the butterfly flaps its wings in Argentina doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a tidal wave in Europe. Um, you know, people may have believed that, but empirically, it didn't seem to be, you know, it didn't seem to be true. Kind of everybody got caught, you know, um, everybody caught with a false, you know, false sense of security with the the U.S. housing market, right? So that butterfly flapped its wings, and it had an impact everywhere uh, because you know there was a there was not great understanding about the uh, interconnectedness of you know a, a lot of finance, structured financial products that were based on the American housing market, right? Just was not well understood the breadth and depth of those, of those products. Today, you kind of do have this feeling that everyone just sort of feels like it's 
kind of hard to imagine what the thing is out there that would cause a, that would cause a, a major financial disruption or even just tradable opportunities uh, that you you know that you saw in things like um, you know the South Korean one. All right. Yeah, when you're looking at geostrategic issues, you know the, one of the first asset classes you look at is always oil, and you know there are lots of things crossing. Uh, the the market chatter these days about big huge uh, bets in the options markets on like two hundred and fifty dollar a barrel oil that sort of stuff that's the kind of thing that you know fundamentals don't get you there right <laughs> fundamentals don't get no. you to two hundred and fifty a barrel no. that is a global crisis of some proportion that is the the you know oil as a weapon and we've obviously seen you know, the weaponized gas supplies from, uh, from Russia. That's another, that's a factor in this Belarus uh, situation as well. And, uh, and, you know, OPEC has dug in and formed a pretty united front here in the defiance of a lot of major powers in the world who would like oil prices to be a little bit lower, not just the Biden administration sort of shaking their fist <laughs> at, at OPEC. It's Brussels, Beijing. I mean, you name it. It's the, the OPEC is, OPEC is in defiance of, uh, of, of a lot, but I think that says, that says something here. And uh, it's something that we're watching, we're watching very closely. On the flip side, you know, the Biden administration, they can't do a lot about so much inflation. They, can do, they have some levers to pull when it comes to oil. One being the, uh, you know, the upcoming Iranian uh, negotiations. Basically, if you get Iranian uh, supply, if you have detente with Iran, and have Iranian supply coming back legitimately onto global financial um, into global oil markets. That is a that's a swing producer right there. Yep. And uh, and then you've got the possibility of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And you know Democrats have sort of looked at looked at President Trump, and they don't necessarily want to emulate President Trump's value system and the way he operates. But I think that the Democrats looked at uh, the way that he you know, he took a lot of risks. He did a lot of splashy stuff. He knew that messaging and, and that sort of thing, he used markets uh, at, as a tool to achieve policy ends. That was something that the Trump White House did a lot. And if you've got the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, you know, that's, that's a button you don't want to press lightly. Uh, but it is something that you can, it is something that you can do if you've got you know, if you've got a situation where you want to make a you want to make a statement, you want to keep traders from getting, you know, from from getting too far over their skis on the long side of it. Yeah, that may be the I mean, that may be the uh, it's sort of, uh, you know, disciplining um, if you're using it as a tool to sort of discipline speculation in markets. But um, that, of course, is not the, the you know, the stated uh, um uh, objective of the strategic petroleum reserve. Which... That's, that is, that is correct. Yeah. That's correct. Um, but you yeah. can have the unstated objective of the strategic yeah. petroleum yeah. reserve. Definitely. There are lots of unstated objectives in Washington, DC. Def- definitely. Still, yeah. Yeah. But you also have this just like, you know, uh, yeah, the contradiction of, uh, you know, of, of, you know, ongoing cop, uh, cop 26 weeks and the talk of, uh, of, um, you know, minimizing and effect and, and eventually getting to, you know, net zero on, on carbon and fossil fuel usage um, and, you know, pushing OPEC to 
drill, baby, drill, and uh, and tapping the strategic petroleum. Resources. It was absolutely hysterical. You <laughs> it can't be more ironic. No, it's just it's like it's, on the it, stage. Yeah, it just sounds instant, you know incoherent and um, uh, yeah, but that's you know that's where we are. Yeah, it's really um, hard to like level with the American people and say you know this is going to be a costly you know it's not going to be. It's not going to be necessarily the cheapest to, and that's, it's it, as a, in the current political environment, like trying to level with the American people and say, you know, we may have to pay higher, you know, prices at the pump as we transition in this transition process to yeah. uh, electric vehicles and that sort of stuff. That just, you can't say that it's not going to fly. <laughs> so, uh, well, and then you, you also have the, uh, the ongoing situation in, uh, in Europe as well. Uh, if we could just take a minute on that with uh, you know, Nord Stream 2 and questions about Putin's intentions in uh, using uh, gas, you know, gas pipelines as a diplomatic weapon uh, with Western Europe. Um, but also just the, you know, the, um, you know, the breakdowns in their you know, gas supply chains and, and their, and their, you know, the gas markets in Europe is uh, as we head into winter are, you know, proving troubling for them again, aren't they? Yeah. The carbon, the carbon economy will not go quietly. (laughs) So yeah, it really is. uh, It's a, it's a real issue. And, you know, Putin, they always say Putin doesn't have a heck of a lot of cards to play, but the ones that he has, he plays aggressively and adeptly. And that's this is one of those cards, and uh, it's pretty clear that that he he thinks that he can you know he can achieve at least some form of uh, of relevance and and uh, and leverage to 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 what ultimate end you know it's it's hard to say that the the long term strategy is all that all that <laughs> sharply in focus, uh, but certainly causing causing a lot of consternation, pain, staying you know staying very relevant. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's certainly part of the, obviously just part of the program for them. Yeah, no doubt. Well, we'll, we'll continue to keep an eye on all of these things. Um, they're, they're, you know, they're definitely not going away. So guys, um, good show. Anything, oh, oh, next week we talk about earnings. What else we got? Uh, the retail sales is a big one. Uh, oh, yeah. and then we also get some, uh, global inflation data from, uh, basically from all around the world. Uh, so that'll be the big one, but, uh, the retail sales is the, uh, is the big number of the week. Yeah, I'm gonna definitely. I think, and I do think we're gonna get some uh, some some inflation insights there as well, which I'll be I'll be paying close attention to. Um, I think I may get one of my, my. I think I may get like a whip inflation now button uh, that I could wear. <laughs> Pull one of those out from the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, looking forward to next week's uh, next week's show. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.